We believe he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the living word of God for us today. Well, I want to join those who've already welcomed you to fellowship today. My name's Lloyd Shadrach. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. We always mention this because we always have guests. I want to uh, remind you or let you know if you're a guest, we have two congregations, one in Brentwood. There are three services that take place on a Sunday at our Brentwood campus. And then our two services here at our Franklin congregation. And so uh, Rob Sweet is our lead pastor uh, and teaching pastor. And I'm, I'm a, a, a teaching pastor with him. And we believe very strongly in a plurality in the pulpit uh, and a team ministry and even um, two different voices that are bringing the word of God to you because the, the point of our teaching is, is not the teacher, it's the word and that we would hear from, hear from God. So I'm glad you're here uh, with us if you're a guest. Just want you to know that. I want you to turn your attention to the side screens. I've got a quote. It's a little longer and that's why I've got it on the side screen. You can just follow along as I read it. No one is ever really at ease in facing what we call life and death without a religious faith. The trouble with many people today is that they have not found a God big enough for modern needs. Many men and women today are living often with inner dissatisfaction without any faith in God at all. This is not because they are particularly wicked or selfish or godless but because they have not found a God big enough to account for life, big enough to fit in with the new scientific age, big enough to command their highest admiration and respect. It is the purpose of this book to expose the inadequate conceptions of God which still linger unconsciously in many minds and which prevent our catching a glimpse of the true God, end quote. So wrote J.B. Phillips. Some of you may have picked this up in his introduction to his classic work. This was in 1952. Your God is too small. Some of you won't remember that. It's still in print today. In a similar vein, A.W. Tozer wrote some 10 years later, 1962, in his classic, still in print today, Knowledge of the Holy, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, Phillips and Tozer are correct, and I believe they are, then we would be hard-pressed to find a more pressing problem for an individual or a, a, a church, a corporate, you know, the corporate sense of all of us, 
than a true and faithful biblical conception of all God is and all that he reveals himself to be. It's gotta be at the top. It's certainly for Paul, we're in this letter to the Colossians, we're only 14 verses in and Paul's writing to these new believers that are now a church there in Colossae and, and in verse 15, he launches into what we now know is, a, is, is one of the earliest hymns of the church, the, the grammar, the Greek on these six verses, uh, it's poetic, it's lyrical. And in, in these verses, N.T. Wright, uh, I don't agree with everything N.T. Wright says, but he's, he's, he's excellent in certain areas. He says this, and just a passing comment, someone who writes this way, speaking of Paul writing, in this, writing this hymn, someone who writes this way wants his readers to stop and think. And that's what we've done. I mean, we, you know, we teach through the Bible and we teach verse by verse, but we've slowed way down to say, let's take this hymn two verses at a time. This morning, we're gonna pick up verses 19 and 20. Um, we've been taking the verse apart two verses at a time for the last few weeks. And I wanna ask this question and, and make a logical and biblical connection for us that's so simple, but I just, I don't wanna take it for granted. If we look at the hymn and we ask the question, okay, Paul wants us to stop and think. What does he want us to stop and think about? Said another way, what, what does he do, why does he write this way so that we will see something? This is not a trick question. And when we look at verses 15 through 20, what, is, what would we say Paul wants us to see? I'll say it this, who does he want us to see? So, tell me. Jesus, okay, so it's really clear he wants us to see Jesus. Now, if Tozer and Phillips are correct, and, and I think the Bible would affirm that the most important thing about us is our, what we think of when we think of God, okay, then why does Paul put all of the focus on Jesus? Now, again, I know this is kind of simple per se, but I don't want us to miss this. And the reason is, okay, is because Paul and the Bible tells us when we see Jesus, we see, yes, y'all, that, that, that's fundamental. Don't, that's not light lunch right there. That is biblical theology at its pinnacle. When we see Jesus, we see God, and that's why he's reinforcing it through this hymn. Now, here's what I wanna do in the moments we have. Two things, I want to show us how Paul doubles down. You know, he, he's already said it's Jesus, Jesus. And then at the end, these last two verses, it's like him going, I'm doubling down on Jesus. I'm, I'm just putting it all on Jesus once again. I'm gonna show us how he does that. And then secondly, we're gonna step back from this text and go, if, if Paul makes that much of Jesus, are there other places in the Bible that we can see this emphasis on Jesus? And I'm gonna step back and I'm gonna give us an overview of the Bible, something I've done many times and I'm, I'm, I will continue to do because I think it's so fundamental to faith. And we'll see if uh, Jesus shows up and how he shows up throughout the scripture. Okay, start in our text today and to get our context, I want you to start with me in verse 15. Paul begins the hymn, Jesus he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Larry did a wonderful job last week picking up verses 17 and 18. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is our context that we're gonna pick up these last two verses. And I emphasize that word preeminent because when Paul says, and he is preeminent, Eminent. Remember, you know, it's, he's exalted. He's above all. He's uh, in status and rank. There's no comparison to Jesus. Where he goes in 19 and 20 is, I'm gonna tell you again while he's preeminent because he's already told us how he's preeminent in 15, 16, 17, 18. But again, it's he doubles down. The four in verse 19 can be translated because and so that's where I want our minds going. It's, oh, he's preeminent because, and then he unpacks 19 and 20, which I'll read in their entirety first. Because for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's start with verse 19. Paul's reason for Jesus being preeminent is because in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's, he's said this already, but he's saying it again. A couple of words here. Fullness is completeness. So the completeness, the whole of God is in Jesus. And you know, we could come up with, I could try and come up with a description, a definition of words, and I'm trying to just keep it as simple as it can be in the way that Paul is saying it. And maybe the simplest thing to say is there's, there's nothing that God is that Jesus is not. That's what he's saying. He said in another way, you know, all that God is, Jesus is. Was pleased means the father was delighted it delights the father that his fullness dwell in the son. The word dwell means what you know it means, inhabit, to dwell. The, the, the Greek idea in the word is that, but it carries the idea of permanence. So it's not Airbnb, it's not VRBO, it's not staying at a hotel, you dwell there. No, to dwell is to remain permanently. So verse 19, Jesus is preeminent because all that God is delights to permanently dwell in the Son. And then he continues, verse 20, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself, God the, to God the Father, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, through the blood of his, Jesus's cross. Now, I hope when you read that, something kind of goes ding, 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 and says, gosh, it, that sounds somewhat familiar to what Paul has already said. 
And it is. Do you remember two weeks ago when I was going through 15 and 16, I said there were three prepositions that guide Paul's statement. Uh, there's the N, the e, Greek E-N, N, which is by him. By him, all things were created. And then there's the through, I said the preposition, which is dia, D-I-A, through him all things. And then it ends with the eis, E-I-S preposition, which is translated for, or it can be translated to. So now we're in 18 and 19, and I don't want you to miss that he does it again. He says, as you'll note in verse 19, for in him, that's the E-N-N preposition, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, there we go, the dia, and through him to reconcile to himself, to, there's the east, the E-I-S, you see that? And it's a beautiful picture of a gifted writer on the inspiration of the Spirit because all good writing, you know, poetic, lyrical, or good writing in general, it always comes full circle. You know, you read a story and it always, you know, you bring, you bring it full circle. So now Paul's coming right back to where he started the hymn itself. Jesus is preeminent because through him, God has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. I'm gonna start with the scope because he says, you know, all things. Then he says, whether on earth or in heaven. So, We'll talk about reconcile in a moment, but the idea is that, that G, by, the, by the cross, Jesus has reconciled all things, whether on earth, remember verse 15 and 16, earth visible, or in heaven, heaven invisible. The, 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 the picture that Paul has given us is that through Christ, all things are reconciled. And when I do my arms like this, it's like all things, and you guys know it's like all things, and yet... The, 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 if I tried to do it literally, I wouldn't put my arms like this because all I'm doing is making a circle. The reality is this, it, infinitely in all directions, you know, God reconciles the whole universe and everything in it. What does it mean to be reconciled? <clears throat> we, get a, we get a hint of that, and, and it's more than a hint. In the text itself, he says to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. What, what does it mean to reconcile? Well, he says here, making peace making peace. And so we're gonna unpack that a bit because biblical peace is something far different than worldly peace. The first thing we'll note is that if something must, if, if peace must be made, then, <clears throat> then there is a state of unpeace. That's why there must, peace must be made. There's a state of unrest, unreconciliation, disruption, disintegration. Biblical peace, however, and, and the idea being that the, the uh, fighting sides are brought back together. Separate sides or relationships are brought back into harmony and wholeness. Now, biblical peace is just one of those super weighty and rich words. It's not simply a cessation of hostilities. You know, we've got the, the, in the news now with the Syrian conflict and you know, they've, they've brokered a ceasefire, you know, for five days that they're hoping will hold. There's, there's battles going on all over the world in different places. 
and when a ceasefire is secured, uh, you know, some will call even even some will call that peace. Or, or even when 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 warring countries come, have peace, I want to suggest to you that any peace between nations on this planet is, in essence, really a a, a long ceasefire. It's not in the biblical term, peace. Are you with me on this? I don't wanna make light of peace in the world, but that's not biblical peace because biblical peace is so much deeper than we're no longer killing each other. We're no longer harming, harming each other. Biblical peace, it's multifaceted, but let's just try and get to the center of it. At the center of it is everything is God intended. That, that's the... Everything flows off of that biblical piece. Everything put back together by God. That's biblical peace. And that's way different than a surfacey, you know, we're not punching each other or killing each other. How does how does God reconcile all things through Jesus? That's the last part of the verse. Making peace by the blood of his cross. In the Bible, life is in the blood. So this has to do, as you can imagine, with the the life of Jesus poured out. The cross in the Bible is literally at this time, it was the means of death. And we know it is a symbol of death. And so what Paul is saying is by the life of Jesus being given up, poured out on his cross. So we're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus by the cross, the blood on the cross, his blood on the cross. God has made possible the, and not just possible, but he will bring about the reconciliation of everything in the universe. Now, does this mean universalism? This is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's important. We're gonna unpack reconcile further in a moment, but you you could read that and go, okay, so the universalist, and the universalist would be a person who says, look, in the end, everyone is saved. That's not what this verse is saying, even as he uses this word reconcile. Now, how, would, how do we know that? Why do, what, who says I'm right? Um, well, here's what we do is when we interpret our Bible, we, we have certain rules that we use so that we interpret it correctly. Two weeks ago, I talked about context so that when you interpret a word, you know, it can mean different things in different settings. So, so the context where that word is used is the final arbiter on, okay, this is what the author meant by that word. We use another principle when interpreting the Bible called the analogy of faith or the analogy of scripture. And that principle simply says this, you do not interpret one verse in a way that contradicts the whole of scripture. That's called the analogy of scripture. So when we interpret verses, you know, when we interpret a part, it must be consistent with the whole. Does this make sense? So when he says the reconciliation of all things, he can't mean the reconciliation in the sense of everything and everyone is saved salvifically. Why can't he mean that, Lloyd? Because the whole Bible shows us that's not true. 
The whole Bible shows us that, for example, when we were talking a couple weeks ago about the heavenlies, the heavenly beings and the reality of spiritual world and spiritual beings, those beings that fell, that rebelled against God, the Bible says they're unredeemable. Those spiritual beings will, who fell will spend an eternity apart from the presence of God. That's their eternal destination. In the same way, every human being who does not put their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who does not trust that what Jesus did, he, he did for them, the Bible's very clear that in death, their soul will not only be separated from their body, that's the first death, but there's a second death in which their soul will be separated from God forever because they did not put their trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Stick with me on this for a moment because this is where we go to this word reconcile here and go, okay, so it doesn't mean reconcile in the sense of salvific reconciliation. But it does mean, and this is where I might lose some of you, I hope I don't. It does mean, you know, in the end, as I said before, it's biblical peace. God made peace. It made, everything will be as God intended it to be. In the end, everyone will be rightly related to God. Now, what I mean by rightly related is this, the same way that, you know, with God-given conscience, we would say that if a serial killer comes to justice, we'd say, well, that, that serial killer is rightly related to justice and the punishment that killer receives. In the same way, demons, the devil, the father of lies, he will in the end be rightly related to a holy God. For a holy God can take no presence of sin or evil and therefore the devil, the personification of evil will be eternally separate. It will be rightly related to a holy God. Are you guys with me on this? Think about your own salvation. Those of you who've put your trust in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, you understand when we do that, when we put our faith in Christ, the Bible says we are now, you know, the one way I'll describe it is we are now, we're now in Christ. Like we're not who we were, we're, we're now in Jesus. And so everything that Jesus is, his righteous life, his sinlessness, that he paid the penalty for sin, everything Jesus, we're in Jesus. And so if I were to say to you as a, you know, every Christian will, will get what they deserve, the, it's better to say every Christian will get what Jesus deserves because we're in Jesus. Does that make sense? So if you're not in Jesus, then you get what you deserve. You, you choose life apart from God. Does everybody make sense on that? So that's the idea of, of, of reconciliation here. That's the idea of, 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 Jesus, of God making peace with uh, the whole creation is brought to where God has always intended. It's a good reminder to us, I think, y'all, that our salvation, that, that, that Jesus' death on the cross, yes, it saves us, okay? It, it puts us in a right standing with God. But what we often miss is it redeems the whole world. Yes, his death on the, you know, you always say, well, if I was the only person, you know, it's often said, if I was the only person alive on earth, you know, Jesus would have died on the cross for my sins. And I go, yes, but his death on the cross would have been and is for more than just you. 
it's for the interplanetary galaxies, the entire visible and invisible creation, right? It's bigger, bigger than even our personal, as we say, salvation. Romans 8, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. It's, it's recognizing that the cross of Christ, you all, redeems not just humanity, but a creation. You know, it's personified here as groaning, but the creation's broke. It's whacked out. You know, global warming's real. The climate change is real. Um, toxic waste is real. You know, the, the, the planet is awesome. We see things that are awesome, but it's not what, it's not the fullness and glory that God intends all of creation. Even the, even the amazing things we go on vacation, you go somewhere and say, oh God's gorgeous. It's unbelievable. It is, but we've seen nothing yet because it's a groaning creation that we see. It's a hurting creation, but God's gonna redeem it all. Now, okay, with that, Here's what I'm gonna do. I wanna step back because if Jesus is all that and more, okay, then I go, well, would we see that in the Bible? I think we would. And I wanna show you how we would. And I have done this many times and I hope I get to do it many, many more times. And that is to look at an overview of the Bible because I think getting the overview of, a, of the Bible, honestly, I said this to someone the other day. And I've actually said it a number of times, y'all. I'm glad some of us read the Bible in a year and that's a good thing to read the Bible in a year, but I'm telling you, if you don't understand the story of the Bible, your reading of the Bible in a year, honestly, I did this in seminary, it just becomes a chore. It can, I don't wanna say it, you know, because we read the Bible and we don't know where we are. I mean, we don't quite get it. So I, I fundamentally think all of us need a, a core understanding of the whole of the story and then when we read our Bibles, it makes sense, okay? So what I've done is I've put up a very familiar chart that shows us the story of the Bible in four parts, creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. So those are the four categories of the Bible. And the Bible from Genesis to Revelation can be told in those four categories. What I've done on the left-hand side is I've written down some other categories that describe God's purpose and plan, so to speak. And so I've got, these are all God's, put God's in front of all these. It's God's rule, God's people, God's place, God's plan, and God's purpose. So what's the, you know, through creation, fall, redemption, and recreation, what, what is God's plan? What was God's purpose? Uh, what about God's people? You know, I'm just saying, we'll run that all the way through this. So with that, let me walk you through this. And there's so much more that can be said but I hope it whets your appetite in some regard for the beauty of the scripture. Creation, Genesis 1 and 2. In creation, I'm just gonna take the categories. God's rule, you know, God's, God's reign. It is personal and direct. You understand Adam and Eve walked with God, talked with God. It was direct, personal with God, his rule over them and all of creation. In the garden, the people of God were connected and whole, connected to God, connected to themselves, connected with each other, connected to the creation. There was a wholeness in, in, the, in, in the garden. The place, I've already mentioned it, it's a garden. Don't, you know, don't bypass the metaphors of scripture. In the same way that we explored the table 
as that metaphor that we just can't get away from in scripture because a table, what it represents and symbolizes and brings the fullness, the bounty, the connection, the togetherness, the relationships, the bodiness of the table. That's a big deal. The same way in a garden. When you and I think of a garden, I, I think our thoughts would move toward, you know, when you think garden, you go bounty, fullness, life, flourishing, beauty, provision. You know, it's, it's the garden. That's the place. The plan, what was God's original plan? What we see in Genesis one and two, his plan was in creating a, 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 the man and woman is that they would co-equally co-reign and co-rule with God all of creation. And again, I know when we read some of this stuff, we feel like we're reading a Marvel comic book or something, some supernatural powers, and it's gonna be this way. This is God's creation. And he created, his plan was, was that humanity man and woman together would co-reign and rule the universe, y'all, the whole planet. Mind-boggling. Why, God? Why, why this? Why, I mean, why something and nothing? I've got on the bottom purpose, God's glory, and human flourishing. This, God, this is his purpose, his glory, the revealing of himself and all that he is, and human flourishing. Chapter three in Genesis is the fall Adam and Eve rebel. God said, don't eat from this tree. They eat from this tree. God's rule is rejected. We think there's a better way than trusting God's promise and his word. We, we're gonna go this way. And this is the fall of humanity, which we live in to this day. God's people are now disconnected, fragmented, separation. When you think of the fall, when you think of the word death, always think separation. It just blew apart. Our hearts, thoughts, emotions, desires, and choices, all that makes up who we are, it just blows apart. Their relationship with each other blows apart. Their relationship with God blows apart. Their relationship with creation blows apart. It's all disconnected. The place, now, now they are you, are, you are now out of the garden. Okay, they're cast out of the garden. What's God's plan? Interestingly, there's a glimmer of hope that doesn't make much sense. I don't think it did then per se, but it does to us today is that in the curse God promised that there would come a man born of a woman who would crush the serpent's head. Always think about progressive revelation. This is, you know, God reveals all of this story of himself progressively over time. And so when he, this, this revelation came at that time, that promise, okay, yeah, there's gonna be a man born of a woman who's gonna crush the serpent. That, that wasn't really clear. It's gonna get clearer in time. And then God's purpose, it doesn't change. God's glory and human flourishing. God didn't give up. God's purpose is always his glory and human flourishing. In redemption, it's gonna be the working out of this promise, okay? And I wanna start here on plan on this one. So God's plan in the fall, he says, I promise there's gonna come a man who's gonna crush a serpent. In God's plan in the, in the story of redemption, which is, which is Genesis three through Revelation, God makes another promise to a man named Abraham. Genesis 12, one, two, three, fundamental foundation to our faith. And to Abraham, he says, I'm gonna give you a land and from you is gonna come a people and through these people, the whole world is gonna be blessed. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. The, the rest of the Bible, again, from Genesis 12, one to three, is the working out of the Abrahamic covenant. And what we see in the Abrahamic covenant is through Abraham, God forms a people, right? It's, called, it's a nation of Israel, 
And so when we think of the people of God, we think of the nation of Israel formed through Abraham by which the Messiah would come. I've always described to you that Israel, you can picture it, this is kind of weird maybe, but it's, it's the womb, the nation of Israel is the womb through whom the Messiah would come, the savior of the world would come. The one promised back here in Genesis three. Now, the law or the rule of God, the rule of God is law, it's external the 10 commandments and all, the, all that comes with it. It's external to us. We you know, obey this, do this, but it's external to us. The place is the wilderness and the promised land. So, so they're, they're, they're in the wilderness, so many lessons there, and then they're in the promised land, so many lessons there. Uh, the purpose is God's glory and human flourishing. I do want to note that in redemption, it's not just Israel because in redemption, when Christ comes, it's, it's the church, those who put, you know, all who put their faith in Christ. The pinnacle of redemption is the cross of Jesus. This marks the the the. the gravity and weight of all of redemptive history. For God said in the fullness of time, Jesus came. And Jesus came, as Paul says here, to die on that cross. He bore our sins on that cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. And through his blood on the cross, all of creation is then redeemed. We live in a time, we've gotta be careful here. Okay, Jesus, there was a time when Jesus found the redemption became Redemption was fully revealed in Jesus. Jesus came and Jesus says, I'm coming back again. And we live in this in-between time. Someone said this in the last service, so I'll say it to you. When Jesus came, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so when you think kingdom of God, you go, well, when Jesus came, the kingdom of God came. So the kingdom of God is here. Yes, it is. But theologians have always used this term, which is very helpful to say the kingdom of God is now and not yet. So there is a sense in which, yes, the kingdom of God is here, okay? But there's a sense to which it's not yet. The fullness of it is yet to come. Does that make sense? So in the recreation, now this is when Jesus comes again. Jesus is gonna return. He's gonna come back again. And in recreation and in redemption now, the rule of God is internal. It's in the heart. So that's true now. That's the kingdom of God is now. But there's a sense to which the rule of God in our hearts is not yet because we still struggle with the flesh. But there's coming a day when it's gonna be internal with no sin, temptation, no flesh, do you see? People of God is gonna be the body of Christ, the people of God, all who've put their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The place, significant. Again, Revelation is a garden. We don't wanna miss that, that described in the recreation, the new heavens and the new earth, it's, it's gardenesque in its description. What is the plan? Well, you see, when, when the, the, the recreation, Christ comes back, the kingdom of God is no longer now and not yet. The kingdom of God is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is God's, peop, God's rule, God's people in God's place. There, it's, all, it's all there, the consummation of all history and time. And I've added one little word. Why? God's greater 
glory. Why did I add the word greater? Now I want you to note, I want you to look at, I want you to see some things on this chart. What God intended in the beginning, this was God, this is why God's purpose, his glory, what God intended in the beginning, humanity, personal, his rule, personal, direct, connected, whole, flourishing, co-reigning, and co-ruling with God, okay, his original intention, do you notice that his original intention is fulfilled in the recreation? Do you see that? Is everybody with me on that? Like what he always intended is what will be with one massive addition. The cross of Jesus. The life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. And because of the cross, I added on the purpose statement in recreation, God's greater glory. Meaning, God is more fully glorified by a redeemed fallen humanity, a redeemed creation, than had there never been a fall. So that when Ab and Eve rejected God's rule, there was never for all eternity a sense of, we gotta come up with another plan. Adam and Eve messed the whole thing up. I can't fully grasp this, but the Bible is dogmatically clear on it. There was never ever a plan B. There's only God in his sovereignty who from before time began till time as we know it ends and it goes on forever. This is what it's always been about. This is what it's always been about. And when we look at this story, there's this man and his person and work that just dominates the story and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. It's like if, if, if all of us had a giant parachute, you know how people grab these big parachutes, big sheets, and you pulled it tight or picture one of, one of those ball games where they have a giant flag and all of us are around it pulling it tight so that it stands out there tight and someone took a bowling ball and just threw it out in the middle and there's this dip that happens in the sheet. That's Jesus. Throw Jesus on the sheet and everything flows to him. So we say, where's Jesus in all? Well, it's all about him. And what have we already learned from the hymn itself? Jesus was before, y'all, he was before creation. Well, it gets better. Jesus created all things. And the promise of this man is Jesus. And the cross is the fulfillment of every promise of scripture. And Jesus is the fulfillment of every bull and goat and lamb that was ever slain. And in the recreation, 
There's no need for a sun to light the place for Jesus in his presence will illumine all creation. I mean, we look, you know, I just want us to step back and go, whoa. Because that's what Paul wants us to do. Which leads us to this question. And Paul is getting us to address it. Is my Jesus too small? There's the question. One last quote, look at the screen. This is from J.B. Phillips at the back end of his introduction. Unless we are to remain befogged and bewildered and give up all hope of ever knowing God as a person, we have to accept his own planned focusing of himself into a human being, Jesus Christ. What is Philip saying? We will, we will remain befuddled until we accept that God the Father has, has vested himself in God the Son. And God the Father is in no way diminished in his deity by putting all the focus on the Son in the same way that the Holy Spirit is in no way diminished in his godness and deity by always shining the light on Jesus. Do you see that? And so we as God's people must come to that place where we go, God the Father and the Spirit have chosen to exalt the Son, Jesus, and in no way diminish the whole Godhead. But God in, but the Godhead is more fully revealed and glorified as the focus is upon the Son. I'm gonna ask the band to come out. We're gonna end with a song, which is appropriate. We're also gonna end at the table as we have been and will do. I'm gonna ask the ushers to pass the elements. And as these elements come around, if you've placed your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this is your table, this is our table, this is our reminder that we can't live apart from Jesus. So take the bread and take the cup and hold it, just hold it and we'll take it together in a moment. If you have yet to put your faith in Christ, nothing else matters. I mean, that's the, that's the beginning of all things. And if you haven't, go ahead and pass the elements, guys and ladies. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, why not today? There will be people up front, I'll be here. If there's some inclination in you of, of I, I wanna trust Christ today, then trust him and tell him that you've put your trust, tell God you put your trust in Christ. And please let us talk with you as, this, uh, as, our, as our worship service ends, come up and speak with us. In these moments, you, you may not take the bread and cup because you haven't placed your faith in Christ, but what a wonderful moment to ponder. Who is this Jesus? And for the rest of us, would you consider in a few quiet moments, ask the Holy Spirit to show you where your Jesus is too small and to give you a vision of Jesus as he's fully revealed. Let's do that in these moments.